Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Former President Donald Trump had his first day in court yesterday to be arraigned on 34 counts brought by the Manhattan District Attorney in connection with his payoff of a porn star during the 2016 presidential election. Now that we know more about the charges, how solid are they? Did the prosecutor stretch credulity with some of these charges? And what does it mean now that a former American president could stand trial for the first time in our history? Legal expert Barbara McQuay joins us to unpack it all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. On Tuesday, we saw a little history made in New York City. Former President Donald Trump was indicted and arraigned on 34 counts of criminal charges. That history makes uh, an enormous difference, I think, in our idea of what law and order looks like in this country and what the idea of the presidency feels like in our country. Following the hearing, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg talked about why his office filed this case. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and intent to conceal another crime. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. He also caused others to make false statements. 34 false statements. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. So if you were watching cable news yesterday or listening to it as I was, you saw Lots of other legal analysts and attorneys take issue with some of what Alvin Bragg was talking about there and taking issue with what we learned now that the indictments are unsealed and we can see what the charges actually are. We're going to talk a lot about that uh, a little later in the show. After the arraignment, though, Trump returned to his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida, where he conducted a press conference and expressed his many grievances, uh, not just against uh, Alvin Bragg, but just against uh, about everybody. Uh, You know, I think there was a real sense of him looking and feeling cornered yesterday in a way that I'm not sure we've seen from Donald Trump before. Of course, the former president remains a candidate for president in 2024, even with these charges and with other investigations pending against him. I think we would be very surprised if we got to January of 2024 and these were the only indictments that President Trump was facing. The question is, what happens next in this prosecution? Uh, What are the merits of the Manhattan District Attorney's case? And how will all of this affect 
not only the other investigations that are pending against the former president, but how will it affect the presidential contest itself? We have never really been in a position like this before in this country. To help us sort through all of these questions and more, we are joined today by former United States Attorney Barbara McQuaid. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be with you. Yeah, great to have you here. So big day yesterday, not just in New York, but I think all over the country. I first just want to get your reaction and and tell me how how you felt uh, watching a former president of the United States go into a courtroom and be arraigned on 34, 34 criminal charges. I think the charges were about what we expected. There's been extensive reporting and anticipation that this would be about the falsification of business records relating to the payment of hush money. I was a little surprised, I suppose, that it wasn't just the Stormy Daniels allegations that also included Kieran McDougal. Both of them are women who claim to have been in extramarital affairs with Donald Trump, but also the story of a doorman who claims that Donald Trump had fathered a child out of wedlock. I don't know whether any of those stories are or are not true. Mm -hmm. The case is not really about the truth of those statements. It's about the falsification of business records uh, to conceal those allegations. So about what we expected and then how I felt. I mean, I guess it's a sad day to see that uh, a leader of the United States uh, is uh, going to court as a defendant in a criminal case. But I don't I don't think it's sad if, if someone has committed a crime is being held accountable. Um, I think it would be sad if someone who's been a president wants to be president again has committed a crime. And so for that reason, it was a sobering moment. Um, I thought it was a bit of a spectacle with Donald Trump's 11 car uh, entourage. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's how he rolls. And I think the, the spectacle is, uh, you know, something that he will continue to campaign on portraying himself as, you know, as the victim here. Yeah. Uh, reminder to listeners, uh, this is a show where we especially want to hear from you about how you're reacting to not just uh, the visuals of yesterday, the idea that a former president of the United States walks into a courtroom as a defendant, but also the specific charges here. And what do you think maybe the Manhattan DA is stretching just a little to try to get uh, Donald Trump, as Donald Trump said he was last night when he returned to his uh, residence in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. Uh, what do you think about all of this? What do you think about the looming other charges that Donald Trump could face before we get to the real campaign season for the 2024 presidential election? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Barb, I, I, I do want to dig a little into these charges. The, the number is, is I think, the thing that, that hits people first. It's a lot, but it's a pretty complex case that the DA is trying to build here. Uh, and I, I'm not a lawyer, and so I'm not going to pretend to understand all of the particulars of, of how you get from the things that are alleged to the idea that they are a felony. But it does strike me that that is the big question that people are raising. Are the things that, that Alvin Bragg says Donald Trump did, which I don't think many people really dispute. Are they are they actual crimes? Are they felonies? Or is this 
kind of uh, a stretch? Is this is this taking behavior and trying to make it into a crime instead of uh, applying the law in a way uh, that that is fair and just? I think that's the key question, Stephen. And I think the answer to that is to look at the track record of Alvin Bragg. You know, Donald Trump seems to be saying, you've singled me out for special treatment just because I'm a former president. But um, Alvin Bragg said in his public remarks yesterday that this is a crime that the Manhattan DA's office takes very seriously because they are the financial capital of the world and accurate business records are essential to conducting business. In fact, Alvin Bragg, since taking office a little over, what, 15 months ago in January of 2022, has charged this same crime 29 times before. This is his 30th case charging falsification of business records to conceal another crime. And so I don't think it is um, you know, something he made up and found uh, in a dusty old uh, code book somewhere like, hey, here's something we could charge Trump with. <laughs> this is a pretty bread and butter charge for the Manhattan DA's office. And so um, to give Trump a pass for something where you would ordinarily charge somebody who committed this crime would itself be uh, an abuse of Alvin Bragg's responsibility. Yeah. So. I don't think it, it, it does not appear to me, based on that track record, that this is any sort of selective prosecution that is inappropriate. And, and still, there is uh, there is a there is a bit of a stretch here in terms of where uh, the the way in which Bragg uh, gets to the idea that this is a felony. Is that right? That that uh, that covering up another issue that is. A state election law violation, I think, is what what the the logic here uh, suggests is is something of a it's it's a little bit unusual, right? I don't know that I would say it's a stretch. I don't know that we have seen this precise crime charged by Alvin Bragg, but um, you know there was a piece in the Just Security blog that found seventeen instances of similar cases being found in Manhattan and around the country. Um, but it's not a stretch. The law provides that falsifying a business record is a misdemeanor in New York, but there is an enhancement. If it is used to conceal another crime, it becomes a felony. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Alvin Bragg routinely charges. Um, I suppose the underlying theory here might be novel in that we have not seen um, this prosecutor charge this crime to conceal the payment of hush money. Uh, but as we said, it's been done in, in at least 17 other cases. The one uh, quibble I would have, though, about this indictment is that I would have expected Alvin Bragg to have articulated the precise code section of the crime he alleges is being concealed. Hmm. And instead, he he says it in kind of a vague way, um, concealing state and federal election and tax laws. Um, You know, at some point, he'll have to show a jury exactly what those laws are and how they were violated but I'm surprised they aren't specified in the indictment. And I think it opens him to a motion to dismiss for lack of specificity, though there is a cure for it. And it, that would be something called a bill of particulars where the prosecutor files a document that answers those questions. I don't know why he would hold off from doing that other than uh, he wants to keep his options open as mm-hmm. things evolve, perhaps. And if so, maybe that's a shrewd strategic call. But I think that you know, my first question was, what are the underlying crimes here? Mm-hmm. And they aren't specified. They're just sort of, you know, vaguely described in generic terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the ultimate penalty that Donald Trump could face for 
these these charges if if he's convicted uh is this something that could send him to jail which would which again would be a first uh, to my knowledge in u.s history well let's talk about in theory and in practice mm-hmm. so in theory each one of these 34 counts carries a maximum sentence of four years in prison if you do the math I'm a lawyer because they told me there would be no math. But if you do the math, even I can calculate 34 times 4 is 136 years. So theoretically, he could be in prison for 136 years. I think practically, there's no way that happens. Mm -hmm. In fact, practically, I'd be very surprised if he got even a day of prison time. Um, In white-collar cases, for better or for worse, I think for worse, judges uh, do not take white-collar crime nearly as seriously as they take violent crime or drug crimes. Um, And so as a result of that, it is very common for a first offender facing this kind of charge to get a sentence of probation. Now, it could be that he still has 34 felony convictions on his record, but I'd be very surprised if we see him end up going to prison over this case. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Barb McQuaid about the arraignment of former President Donald Trump in New York yesterday on 34 counts brought by the Manhattan District Attorney. Uh, we want to get going with you on the phones and on social as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll start with Stephen Windsor if you want to join him. Again, 313-577-1019 if you want to go to Twitter and hashtag us as well. We can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm glad you've joined us. History made yesterday in New York as a former president of the United States, Donald Trump walked into a courtroom as a defendant charged with 34 counts by the Manhattan DA for behavior in connection with his payoff of a porn star during the 2016 presidential election. That's what we're talking about today with Barb McQuaid, who is a law professor at the University of Michigan, also a former uh, U.S. attorney for the Eastern District here in uh, Michigan. She's also co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast, a really popular and fun podcast about the law. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Let us know how you've reacted to watching a former president walk into a courtroom as a defendant. What do you think about the DA who's brought these charges? What do you think about the charges that are at stake here? Does this seem like a stretch to try to damage President Trump, former President Trump, politically, because he is uh, running for president again in 2024? Or is this just a matter of him having run afoul of the law and perhaps, if a jury decides, facing the consequences for having done that? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Steve in Windsor. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Windsor, but I'm an American citizen. As I've been following this, it seems like 
since the president left office, there's been investigation after investigation after investigation. Um, and I feel like the issue is that there's a kind of club, a business as usual, between our political establishment and business. I feel like, and again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying this is what I think. Mm -hmm. I feel like he shook, shook things up and uh, he's being punished for it almost as a warning to other people who might follow him. Uh, the fact, for instance, last night I was trying to watch coverage and the only place that I was getting and my Canadian cable was CNN. Mm -hmm. And as he began to speak, eventually they stopped showing him and they went to commentary. <clears throat> For the last three years, he hasn't really had a public forum available to him. In the United States, we talk about free speech. Well, if you block him from the platform, you're taking away his free speech. You mm. can argue that the corporations aren't part of the government. But the fact is that the whether it's Facebook or whether it's NBC or CNN, that's become our virtual town square. Mm. And he's being blocked. So, now, so Steve is he right or wrong? I don't know. So Steve, I, I, I do I wanna I'm ask sorry. you to I wanna ask you to, to 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 go a little deeper in terms of what you're saying. So so you believe that that the government and corporations, the government and business are kind of uh, linked together, and that he shook up that that link. Can you give me an example of something he did that sure that uh, that's just sure that? when <clears throat> I believe it was Ford Motor wanted to start producing cars in Mexico, he told them that if they did that, that there was going to be an extra tax on those cars coming to the United States. Mm -hmm. That's the first example that comes to mind. Another thing that comes to mind is um, Boeing produced those planes. They knew they were lethal and 600 people were killed. Nobody was punished. General Motors produced those pickup trucks they knew were killing people. They hid the information from the regulatory people. Nobody was punished. These people lost their lives. Um, I hope I don't sound like my hair is on fire. No. That's not my intent. <laughs> no, it's okay, um, Steve. But I, I trace this back to the Supreme Court decision, um, Citizens United, where mm -hmm. they said that people could give as much money as they wanted. Not only that, but you may not know, they can give the money in secret. Sure. Uh, Steve, um, I, I, I really appreciate the, the call and I do appreciate you you going uh, deeper with some examples when I when I asked uh, I, I look I I hear from a lot of folks who feel the same way and and feel as though uh, I mean I have friends who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 uh, in particular who believed too that that was that was what he would do is that he would shake up this quote unquote partnership between government and business and and bring more accountability um, you know to, to, to the system uh, Barb McQuaid I wonder I mean obviously this doesn't have anything specifically to do with the Manhattan DA's charges but I think Steve's take on this does present uh, you know a side of this uh, of this question 
that the DA may have to deal with in a juror or two uh, if it gets to that point. There, there is this sense that a lot of people have that Donald Trump is is a victim and is being punished for doing and saying the things that uh, that he did when he was president. Yeah, I think Steve raises a point that is probably shared by many Americans um, and is certainly one that Donald Trump has been promoting, which is I am only being targeted because uh, I am uh, the former president, a political leader, uh, a disruptor, as Steve Steve suggests. Um, but there is a, 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 a consequence for that, if that is the case. Um, there is something known as selective prosecution, which is a violation of the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment that says um, it is illegal to target someone for criminal prosecution, even if there's probable cause Mm -hmm. to believe that they committed the crime, if it is done for some discriminatory purpose like race, religion, or other arbitrary factor. But it's not enough just to say, I think you're targeting me for this thing. You have to show that the prosecutor has not prosecuted other similarly situated people. So if you could show, for example, that there are a lot of people committing this crime of falsifying business records and that Alvin Bragg gives everybody a pass on that crime, except for Donald Trump, that would be a basis for dismissing this case for selective prosecution. Or when this case comes to trial, if it turns out that there is insufficient evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury of 12 people, that could be a way for Donald Trump to prevail here. But those those systems are in place to protect from the kind of thing that Steve is talking about. And we'll wait and see whether Trump's lawyers can file a successful motion or if he can be acquitted at trial um, in a way to demonstrate that. So there are legal protections uh, to try to prevent that sort of targeting and scapegoating from occurring in the legal system. One of the things that's really interesting to me, too, is that this is one of the places where both the far right now and the far left seem to meet. I, I have incredibly progressive friends who will say the same thing about uh, about other figures and and about other people being targeted because of their beliefs by uh, by government by prosecutors uh, and things like that and that says to me that there is something stronger going on in the culture that you have people who wouldn't agree on very much else who would come together around the idea that uh, that government is 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 corrupt and and that it is in cahoots with business in that corruption and that that ends up targeting people who challenge the system. Yeah, I think it's uh, an unfortunate reality in light of the kinds of rhetoric that we have in this country. You know, no doubt there are in certain places uh, individuals in government who are corrupt. And no doubt when you have a system designed by people in power, their laws uh, will favor those in power uh, just because that's their worldview. You know, we need business to operate. So we have uh, fairly lenient penalties for white collar crime. That I think is a reflection of powerful people who get to make the rules. But this idea that prosecutors are just out there gunning for their enemies is something that I think is different. And based on my time in government, um, is is rare and would be highly uh, um, unethical, illegal, and inappropriate. And we have mechanisms for finding that and um, eliminating it yeah. um, and, and policing it. And so Donald Trump has the ability here through legal motions and a jury trial to try to um, defend himself 
uh, if these kinds of improper methods are being used. Um, I have not seen any evidence of that other than Donald Trump's own statements that he believes he's being targeted uh, for political reasons. Yeah, yeah. Again, Steve, really appreciate uh, the call and the, the really thoughtful comments. Uh, let's go next to Gary in Hamtramck. Gary, what's on your mind? Good morning. Uh, I had a couple of uh, questions. On TV yesterday, there was uh, one of the lawyers, not involved in this case, but representing Trump and some of his other legal entanglements, mentioned that, that in New York there was a federal grand jury that was investigating these issues, mm-hmm. and that at some point the federal, the uh, I guess the U.S. prosecutor in, in the district in, in New York decided to drop the issue, whereas the state attorney general decided to pick it up. I was just wondering why is that a common thing to happen and, and why. The second question is just basic is, Everyone says Trump wants to delay. I mean, is is there any chance this thing is going to go to trial within this year, calendar year? Can the judge at some point say, put a, you know, say by such and such a date you've got to file all your motions and then uh, and we're going to rule on them and get this thing in front of a, a juror, jurors? Yeah, uh, great questions, Gary. And I I saw that same point raised over and over again yesterday. Uh, on television, I want to give Barb McQuaid a, a, a chance to to answer it. Um, but but I also, Barb, would love if you could talk with our listeners just a little about that tension between uh, federal and state election law and the issue of preemption, which which comes into the uh, I think comes into the discussion when you're when you're thinking about these things. But 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 what did happen with the federal investigation into these very same acts and the decision not to charge, not by one attorney general, uh, you know, Bill Barr, but but the, 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 the person who took the job after also declined to, to charge that. Yes, I think it's a really interesting observation, and I don't know the answer. Um, it, is, it is sometimes the case that there's overlapping jurisdiction for many kinds of crimes, both federal and state. Sometimes there are even turf wars over who will take a case, but most of the time, but the federal and state court prosecutors will work out, you know, which case makes more sense or, you know, which jurisdiction makes more sense, whose laws are more favorable, um, you know, where where uh, can they um, get the most efficient result. And so that happens from time to time. But it is unusual that you'd have a case like this where Michael Cohen, the lawyer for Donald Trump, entered a guilty plea for this very scheme. In the plea documents, it refers to someone identified as individual one who directed and coordinated the scheme. And then later in the documents, it says individual one um, successfully ran for the presidency in 2016. So I think we know who individual one is. <laughs> right. um, that, that's clearly Donald Trump. And so I think most of us expected that there would be a charge against Donald Trump for the same things. It's very rare that you would charge an underling and not someone who is higher up in organized criminal activity. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, typically you work your way up the chain, down the chain. Um, Jeffrey Berman, the former U.S. attorney in New York, wrote a book where he said that he got pressure from William Barr and others at at Maine Justice to drop the charges against Cohen, to remove references to individual one. And then he he was, uh, you know, he was fired. He was forced out of his job. So he speculates that there was improper interference from above. I don't know that to be true. Reasonable minds can disagree about the strength of a particular charge. And then, as you point out, that administration ended and Merrick Garland came in. And there was still plenty of time within the statute of limitations for Merrick Garland to charge this mm-hmm. case. 
So I don't know why they declined, but then they picked it up in New York and Alvin Bragg ran with it. I don't know, it perhaps Merrick Garland said, we've got bigger fish to fry with the January 6th investigation and then later the Mar-a-Lago investigation. I don't know uh, why they decided not to pursue it. Uh, but Bragg did, and that's certainly within his right to do that. As for your preemption argument, the idea is that for certain kinds of laws, the federal government occupies the field. Mm -hmm. For example, state courts can't prosecute cases of immigration because that is a uniquely federal concept. Or the counterfeiting of U.S. currency, that is a uniquely federal concept. And it would be dismissed in state court as something only a federal prosecutor can bring. Um, with election law, per se, if it's a federal election law, that also would be preempted. But what's interesting here is they have not charged Donald Trump with violating um, federal election law. What they've said is he was concealing a violation of federal election law. So I don't know that preemption will be a problem here, but it might be. And I can see them filing a motion uh, to, to litigate that issue. Yeah. It also alleges, however, violations of state election law and state tax law. So I think even if they're able to knock out that basis for the crime, um, it's probably not going to um, you know, terminate the whole case. Yeah. So, so what about Gary's question about timing? I think that was one of the things mm, that yeah. uh, I saw people talking about <laughs> yesterday a lot. Is this something that will move quickly through the, that courtroom in New York? Or is this something that could drag on not just into the election season, but maybe past it next year? Yeah, it will not move quickly. Yesterday, um, they did discuss some scheduling matters, and the judge directed the parties to file all their motions, the defense by August, the prosecution by September, and set a hearing date on those motions for December with a trial date set um, tentatively for January. The prosecution asked for a January date. Um, I don't know that that will happen. The judge will decide all of those motions. One thing in the favor of the prosecutors at this stage is that there's something known as the final judgment rule that says that even if a judge rules against the defendant in those motions, you can't appeal them until there's a final judgment in the case. So you would then go forward with the trial and any sentencing if there's a conviction, and only then could Trump appeal any of these earlier decisions. Now, on the other hand, if the judge rules in favor of Trump and say dismisses the case in December, then the prosecution could appeal that. Uh, and that could take us, you know, months and years down the road. So mm -hmm. um, I would expect more delays. I bet I'd be surprised if the trial really goes in January, but I think it will go sometime in 2024. But I'll tell you, if you're Donald Trump, you get to January 2024 and you say, well, now I've got a primary election in January. I've mm -hmm. got their caucuses coming up now. Um, this should be delayed until past the November elections. And then, of course, if I win, it should be delayed past my presidency so see ya in January 2029. <laughs> <laughs> so so I also want to have you address the other investigations that are kind of hanging over President Trump. Uh, there's one in Georgia that, that I think a lot of people expect to, to bear some uh, some fruit in the form of uh, indictments. And then there is, of course, the, the federal investigation into January 6th and the former president's role there. If those do, uh, uh, you know, mature, I guess, in, in, uh, in, in, a, in, in uh, proximate time to, to, to all of this. What, how does that all work out? Does the federal case take precedence over the others? Uh, could Georgia jump the line, I suppose, and, and uh, get this done before uh, the election? The, the, the prospect of someone running for president while facing 
charges in multiple jurisdictions uh, on multiple different crimes is kind of mind scrambling, I guess, for me. And and I, I don't know how all that, how would that even work? I think it's mind scrambling for all of us, Stephen. I'm not sure how it would work. But I, I do think that before we get to the, the January trial in this case, if it goes in January, or even the December motions, I think there's a pretty good possibility that we'll see charges out of Georgia and even charges out of the Department of Justice federally. And so now you've got three or maybe even four cases going if the Mar-a-Lago and the January 6 cases are charged. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think there's a very strong chance all three of those get charged before the end of this year. Um, in terms of which gets to go first, you know, they can kind of be going simultaneously. There will be motions filed in all of those cases, the exchange of discovery, plea negotiations, which seem unlikely. Uh, all of that stuff could be occurring simultaneously. Um, if a char- if a case is actually on the books for a trial and there's a conflict in the dates, then the earlier case would get to go first. Mm-hmm. But it's possible that in Georgia, you get a judge who says, you know, nope, I, like, I have more of a, what's known as a rocket docket. I'd like to move my cases fast. So, um, you know, case gets charged in May and we're going to trial um, in September. You know, you can see something like that happening. So yeah. uh, n- no telling which case, if it, you know, if, if there are more, which case might come first. But it does promise that 2024 will be a very busy year for Donald Trump. Yeah, sounds like it. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Barb McQuaid about the arraignment of Donald Trump in New York yesterday. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Robert in Detroit, Greg and Casco and David in Detroit. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag us, and we'll include you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Ruby on Twitter says, Beware the perpetually unimpressed. They'll always try to move the goalposts. On its face, this case is solid. We're talking about the arraignment of former President Donald Trump in New York yesterday on 34 counts brought by the Manhattan DA in connection with his payoff of a porn star during the 2016 presidential election. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Barbara McQuaid. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan, also a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and co-host of the really wonderful podcast, Sisters in Law. We're talking about uh, this historic moment yesterday in New York, what it means from a legal perspective, but also what it means from an historic perspective. Uh, The first time that a former president has been charged with a crime like this uh, would be the first time if he if a jury convicts him and he is sentenced to prison to be the first time former president goes to jail uh, what do you think about that what do you make of the charges 
brought by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. What do you make of Donald Trump's response to those charges? He flew home yesterday after his arraignment to Mar-a-Lago, Florida, had a big rally where he made a lot of accusations against the Manhattan DA, but also said that this is part of a larger conspiracy against him. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we'll include you in the conversation. Let's go next to David in Detroit. David, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh Um, You kind of surprised me. I didn't think I was in line. (laughs) Go ahead. First of all, for all the people that are clutching their pearls, about a president, a former president, being held criminally liable or criminally charged, I'd like for them to remember that the United States is a young country, and most countries have had leaders that have been tried, even exiled, jailed, and even beheaded. So this is just America growing up. And secondly, what concerns me sociologically is so many people who don't seem to know the difference between right and wrong. So they are uh, saying that, uh, yeah, he did it, but it doesn't really matter. I know that I have, I, I have uh, made false statements on forms before, mm. and I know that there's a consequence if I'm called out on it, and I'm willing to accept those consequences. But the people that say it's okay to just lie on forms like that really do worry me. Hmm. Uh, David, I'm glad you called and and brought that up. I mean, anyone who owns a business knows there are things that uh, you have to report on and and tell the government uh, about your business and you can't lie about it. Uh, Barb McQuaid, what, what what's your reaction to what David's saying about how people are not taking that very seriously? It's not a serious crime unless it's covering up a more serious crime, I guess, but it is against the law. I agree with David. I think, you know, if you really take this argument to its logical conclusion, you know, that's what law professors do. You use hypotheticals to say, uh, you know, to try to demonstrate the fallacy of an argument. People are outraged that Donald Trump has been charged with a crime because he's a former president. And we've never done that to anyone before, uh, even though, as David points out, plenty of other leaders in developed democracies have. This isn't a banana republic, third world kind of a concept. You know, it happens in um, other other democracies. But play that out a little bit. Um, what if Donald Trump, uh, you know, stood in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shot somebody? Mm-hmm. Are we saying that just because he's a president, he can't be charged with that crime? Or we only will charge him with a serious crime and not crimes we consider less serious? Where do we draw the line between what's a serious crime and a less serious crime? If we say... People like David can be charged with a crime for falsifying business records, but not a president, a former president, then we're saying he really is above the law. And that violates what we consider equal justice under law and the rule of law. So I think that outrage really is misplaced. It is a sad day that a U.S. president may have committed a crime that causes him to be charged. Um, If there is no basis to the charge, which we will find out when a jury looks at it, that would be a sad thing that a prosecutor abused his power to charge someone when there was no evidence to prove it. But aside from that, in some ways, it's a good day for America that we see that the rule of law actually does hold people accountable regardless of who they are. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the other questions that came up yesterday while I was watching coverage of this is whether it's fair to have Donald Trump stand trial 
uh, in the jurisdiction where he's where he's charged. He is a lifelong New Yorker, uh, but uh, you know there's there's great hostility to him in in the city. Uh, I expect that his lawyers will will make a motion to have the case move to another jurisdiction. What what are the criteria for something like this? And do you think Donald Trump could get a fair trial in New York? Yeah, so the idea of a change of venue, and I agree with you that his lawyers will likely file such a motion, um, seems unlikely to me. You know, ordinarily, a crime is charged and tried in the jurisdiction where it occurred. If this crime occurred in Manhattan out of the Trump organization, then that's the presumptive place where it should be. And the only reason you would move it out of that jurisdiction is because you believe that no jury can be seated that could give Donald Trump a fair trial. Um, one example where that actually happened was in the case of Timothy McVeigh when he um, you know, was charged with blowing up the Murrah Federal Building in mm-hmm. Oklahoma City. And in that case, the judge found that because it was a small, tight-knit community, there were almost everybody in the community was affected by it in some way. You know, they knew somebody, their neighbor's friend, uh, their you know, cousin's co-worker, everybody had somebody who was affected by it. And for that reason, he moved it out of Oklahoma City and into Denver. Where they heard the case. In New York, a city of 10 million people, there may be lots of people who are hostile to Donald Trump, but I'd be stunned if you couldn't find 12 who could be fair. Hmm. In fact, just last year, they had a trial uh, with the Trump Organization as a defendant, and they asked the jurors questions about Trump and the Trump Organization. And although there were plenty of people who said, I can't be fair, I hate the guy, um, they were able to find 12 who could. And so I'd be very surprised if they aren't able, it may take longer, the jury selection process, to weed out the people who can't be fair. Um, it may be that people lie and it's difficult to ascertain who really can't be fair. But um, you have to make a real showing that you can't seat a jury. It can't just be speculation that um, in this city of 10 million people, we can't find 12 who can be fair. Uh, Adam on Twitter says, these indictments are a sign to the international community that the U.S. will put its money where its mouth is when it comes to upholding the rule of law taking a stance against the Republican populism that has undermined our credibility around the world. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go next to Greg in Casco. Greg, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'd just like to say uh, my hope at this point is that the millions of people who voted for him realize what a terrible mistake they made. And I think Trump should suffer the consequences for his actions. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, Greg, I appreciate the, the sentiment. It's something I'm hearing a lot of uh, in, the, in the last 24 hours. Barb, we haven't talked much about the political implications of this. And, and I know that's not, that's not what you do for a living. But, but it is an interesting part of this that, that uh, you know, I hear some people saying that this kind of charge, the, 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 the difficulty people may have understanding it may help uh, Donald Trump uh, be a, a stronger presidential candidate, uh, more likely to get the nomination on that side. And then, of course, there's the, I guess, conventional wisdom, which would say that, you know, standing trial for a felony or more than one felony while you're running for president is something of of a liability. But but. There is an assumption, I think, that prosecutors take some of that into account when they decide these kinds of things. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about how how these things play out in prosecutors' minds or whether they do. 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't know about the rules in Manhattan, but I imagine they're very similar to the rules in the federal system where the Justice Department manual says that, um, you know, just because you can file a case doesn't mean you should. You should first determine whether there's probable cause to believe a crime has been, has been committed and that you believe you can prove it to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt and that it will be sustained on appeal. But you're not done yet. It then says you should make a separate consideration to use your discretion and decide whether charges should be brought. And there are a number of factors that prosecutors are uh, counseled to consider, uh, like whether there's a need for deterrence in the case, whether there's a need to protect public safety, um, whether there are actual victims in the case, whether the prosecution would serve a substantial federal interest, um, and the need to avoid unwarranted disparities, to make sure you're treating like people alike and different people differently. What you must never consider um, are things like race, religion, national origin, mm -hmm. political affiliation. And so all of those things are off the table. I will say that as a matter of just being a human being, um, even though maybe it's not an appropriate consideration, I have to imagine that Alvin Bragg is also considering in a case like this, that this case will invite enormous scrutiny and that Donald Trump will fight, fight, fight every step of the way. For that reason, I imagine that he reviewed this case more carefully than he reviews every other case. Not, not that he shouldn't review every other case, I think he just doesn't have time to closely scrutinize every single case that you know, hundreds of prosecutors they put out every day. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine that in this case, um, he wanted to make sure every T was crossed and every time I was dotted and that he sat around with a group of his best prosecutors and kicked it around and cross-examined it, which is probably why he thought it was not ready to prosecute a year ago when he first took office. And he demanded additional evidence to make sure, I would guess in a case like this, that it was bulletproof before he was willing to pull the trigger. So I think in some ways, for those reasons, someone with the stature of Donald Trump probably gets a little special treatment in that you're only gonna bring a case that you believe is exceptionally strong under the old adage that if you come at the king, you best not miss. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I also wonder if you can talk a little about the efforts made by Donald Trump and some of his supporters to make this about the judge and make it personal about the judge uh, or the DA in the case. Uh, there was a story yesterday about, um, you know, people talking about, uh, I think it was the judge's daughter and, and posting a photo. Uh, this, this idea of intimidating um, government officials, intimidating prosecutors, that kind of thing. I mean, we live in a pretty dangerous time for that kind of rhetoric. It really concerns me uh, when you see that. Um, but what what can you even do about it in in a case like this, where now the cat's out of the bag? People are doing things like that. Uh, how do you keep the DA and the and the judge and the other participants in this from that the the kind of peril that I, I think some people who support Donald Trump would like to see them in? I think it's really challenging in a case like this. And I think we have seen the danger of Donald Trump's rhetoric in January 6th. Right? Right? Come to Washington, we'll be wild. Mm -hmm. And so many people took that invitation, even though he doesn't directly say, uh, you know, I want you to, to uh, incite violence. I want you to do this. People may be acting on his behalf if they see his outrage that may incite them to bad conduct. So it's a very real risk. Um, 
I think it's difficult, though. The, the judge actually discussed this a little bit yesterday at Donald Trump's arraignment. The prosecution said they wanted a protective order to prevent um, Trump from making some of these inflammatory comments. And what the judge said is, in light of the very strong First Amendment rights Donald Trump has, not only as an American, as anyone would, but because he's running for president, he said, you know, it's doubly so. Um, for now, I'm just going to ask you nicely <laughs> not to say those things that might incite the public or invite civil unrest or attack the rule of law. Please don't do that. But if if that doesn't work, then I will consider a protective order, you know, that commonly known as a gag order. Um, and then the ultimate remedy is a violation of a gag order is contempt of court and a person can be jailed for that. I think a judge in a case like this is going to give Donald Trump a very long leash, though, because he is a candidate for president. I think what we would likely see is what is referred to in the employment law context as progressive discipline. Um, you know, next time he comes back and he gets a scolding, then he comes back and he gets an order. Mm -hmm. And then only, you know, after three or four violations would he be jailed. And my guess is Donald Trump will come right up to the line um, without crossing it and will, um, you know, push, push other things about this is an outrage without naming names. The last night he named names, he talks about the judge and his daughter. He did. He did. So I, I, I think that they will likely probably come up with some language for a protective order. But, you know, even if Trump himself stops saying things, he has lots of proxies. And unless you're under the jurisdiction of the court, Trump can say, I can't control what people in the media are saying. I can't control what family members are saying. And so the judge can control the defendant and his lawyers and the prosecutor and maybe the witnesses. But beyond that, uh, you know, other members of the of the public are free to say what they want to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to uh, quickly, we got about a minute and a half left. I just want to get you to predict a little bit of what we're likely to see. Does this story go away for at least a while because there's going to be motions and things that, that maybe don't make big news? Or is this going to dominate the discussion of the presidential contest for the for the duration? Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. You know, most of the time in a, a case, there is this quiet period where the lawyers are working very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, the exchange of discovery, you know, the prosecutors required to turn over all their evidence and all the witness statements and other kinds of things. The defense reviews that, you know, it's sort of quiet time at your desk most of the time. Maybe you interview some witnesses and then you file motions, which requires legal research and writing and the filing of those things. So ordinarily, I would expect it to be a quiet time, but nothing's quiet time with Donald Trump. So I imagine that, you know, he and commentators will continue to talk about this because I think he perceives that for at least some part of his voting base that, you know, this is good for the, his campaign. This is, you know, generating um, the kinds of outrage that he likes to use uh, as fodder, you know, for grievance and victimhood and other kinds of things. So I imagine he'll continue to talk about it, uh, even if it is uh, the, the the trial itself is kind of off, off stage until the fall. Sure. Okay, uh, Barb McQuaid, it's always really great to have you and your extensive knowledge of uh, our legal system here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Have a great day. That is going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we are going to look at a new program at Wayne State University that looks to educate students about government oversight right here in Detroit. Also, if you like our show and enjoy listening, remember, share it with your friends and your neighbors and your relatives. It's really easy to do that at WDET.org, or you can download our podcast wherever you get podcasts. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.